Father, this passage is long and unfamiliar and rich and beautiful. And so we pray for your help as we look at it now. Help me to explain and apply it clearly and help us to be drawn to the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a long passage, as I just prayed, uh, pages 583 and 584 in the uh, church Bibles. And uh, just a reminder, I keep forgetting to say this every week, but if you have a question, I can't imagine you'll have any questions today, but if you do, uh, gfcdonmills.live, and uh, you can uh, submit your question there, and then we will uh, have a brief Q&R after the, the sermon is over. At the heart of both the Jewish and the Christian faith is something deeply offensive. At the heart of the Jewish faith is a temple, and at the center of the temple are sacrifices. Now you might be saying, well, what's so offensive about sacrifices? If you look at the book of Leviticus, you discover uh, all different kinds of sacrifices, five different kinds of sacrifices. And if you look beyond the description and the details, what you have is a parade, as somebody said, of bellowing animals being butchered on the altar. I want you to picture what it would have been like to be at the temple. Imagine the sensory overload the violent resistance of the animals, the spurting of blood, the feel of the priest pulling the animal apart, the smell of burning flesh and bones. Imagine this not just once, but daily, the emotional and spiritual impact of offering the sacrifices and then knowing that it was your sin that made this necessary. Imagine the frustration and knowing that you will be back with your sacrifice. You made a sacrifice, there's all this blood, gore, and you have to come back next week or tomorrow because you will sin again. The tabernacle and the temple were literally slaughterhouses. Jewish texts refer to priests being knee-deep in blood. The ancient historian Josephus recorded in one Passover that he counted a quarter of a million animals, lambs, being slaughtered. And so I want you to picture... Uh, what a, a visible and tangible and ugly remembrance this would be of your sin. The blood, the smell, the noise of these sacrifices, all this death going on every single day. Well, the Jewish faith is highly uh, troublesome because at the center is all this blood, all this sacrifice, not just a little bit of blood, but a lot of blood. And at the heart of the Christian faith is something equally disturbing, a cross. We've sanitized the cross. Some of you are probably wearing jewelry with a cross on it. We wear it on necklaces. I imagine that there's probably at least one cross tattoo in this room right now. But it would be almost like taking a, an electric chair and say wearing a, an electric chair pendant around your neck. Or, you know, it's, it's a brutal instrument of torture John Stott says, the cross will always constitute an assault on human self-righteousness and a challenge to human self-indulgence. It's scandal, and the word scandal there literally means stumbling block, cannot be removed for anyone. The cross is so offensive that even Christians today struggle with the idea of uh, what theologians call penal substitution, that Jesus took the full punishment of our sins in our place, that God's wrath for our sin was placed on Jesus, 
And many look at that and say, how can that be? That sounds barbaric that a holy God would need to be uh, placated or uh, propiti- that our sin would need pro- to be propitiated before a holy God. And they struggle with the idea that God would be angry at sin, that God would demand life, that the consequence of our sin is death, and that Jesus would take our place as a sacrifice to turn away God's wrath. Many people today, even Christians, find this offensive and troubling. And here's, they're kind of right. It is troubling. It's true, but it's troubling that at the heart of the Christian faith, just like the Jewish faith, is this very troublesome and offensive idea of sacrifice. But here's what I want to look at today in this passage. The Jewish and Christian faith both have sacrifice at the core. And it's an idea that strikes us as strange and offensive, and yet if you remove it, you remove away the very heart of our faith. If you remove this, you remove, as we've seen in this passage today, something that is critically important for all of us and our souls. And so here's the message of this passage. You might have been wondering why we read such a long passage. We could literally spend weeks in this, but there's one central idea in this passage is that we need a sacrifice in order to be made right with God. We need a sacrifice. As troublesome as it is, uh, as gory as it is, the idea of sacrifice is essential and central to our faith. And here's the other idea, and I think the central idea that he paints here is that Jesus' sacrifice is superior to any sacrifice that could be offered and deals decisively with the great offense of our sins. That's it. If you were wondering, what is this passage about? I mean, we're going to delve into it today. But two ideas, we need a sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice is not only essential, but it deals decisively and finally with the enormous offense of our sins. And so I want to look at this today with you. Uh, Hebrews is written, as uh, you might remember if you've been here before, to a group of Christians who were tempted to abandon Christianity and wander back to the Jewish faith. And that's why he spends so much time in something that's unfamiliar. He spends some time uh, unpacking the Jewish sacrificial system. I'm so glad he did. Because a lot of Christians today don't understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. And I'm so grateful that here he unpacks in great detail the idea of uh, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, uh, the Sabbath rest, the rest. uh, And he helps us understand how all of this prepares us for Jesus. But in last week, he basically said uh, the Old Covenant, and he's been talking about this week after week, the Old Covenant can't get the job done. He's going to spend some time explaining some things about the Old Covenant and how they point to Jesus. And then what he's going to do in this passage is basically just unpack how Jesus' sacrifice is better. And so in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 9, here's what he tells us. The Jewish system communicates some important truths. The Jewish system communicates some important truths. In verse 1, he basically says, okay, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then he unpacks three things about the old system that actually teach us something important. The place in verses 2 to 5. Man, and you think I'm running over this? In verses 2 to 5, he just runs over a lot of Exodus and Leviticus. He basically summarizes it in just a few verses to say, You've got a temple, and all the details of the temple, he doesn't even cover all of them, 
all communicate something important, the presence of God with his people. And he just skims over it to say, there's a place. And hold on, he's going to say there's a place in the new covenant as well. And then verses 6 to 7, he says, and this is a lot of Leviticus, you've got sacrifices. He makes a distinction between the first room and the second room. In the first room, there was, uh, and all the priests could go in and do things like replace the showbread and trim the wicks. But in the second room, once a year, the high priest could go in after a lot of preparation to offer sacrifices for himself and for the sins of his people. So you've got this sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, the holiest holiday of the year. But then in verses 8 to 10, you've got this limit built in. He says in verses 8 to 10, and this is interesting what he says here. He says, uh, this is allegorical. Uh, verse 8, he says, you know the first room where all the priests could go in? That's like the old covenant. But it indicates that the way uh, into the holy place a whole, uh, is not yet opened as long as the first section, the holy place is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, the old was just like access where limited access. We're waiting for full access to God in the holy of holies. And in verses 9 to 10, he says, that wasn't available under the old system. According to the arrangement, there was this limit. What was the limit? In frequency of access. Only one person could enter the Holy of Holies and only once a year. And that guy was a sinner. So you've got these big problems. Every year under this system, you've got all this blood being shed. And they did it because God commanded it. And actually, it teaches us some important things. What does it teach us first? Our, the consequence of our sin is death. What a visible reminder, all that blood. You'd have to look at that and say, man, I did this. My sin resulted in this death. What else does it teach us? It teaches that God has made a substitute for the penalty of our sin. And so you're there saying, I demand death, like blood has to be shed. But God has offered a sacrifice. Thank God, I don't have to die. He's provided a substitute. But kind of you'd be wondering, really like a sheep? How could a sheep substitute for me? You'd be right to wonder that. But it's teaching you a substitute. It's just teaching you that all the, the, the great realities that all of us struggle with today that we need to understand, our sin has consequences. And that consequence is death. But it, here's the problem. It doesn't really deal with our deep problem. You'd, you'd wonder, like, that priest who just offered a sacrifice, he's a sinner too. I don't know what the blood of a goat or bull or sheep could do. Like, can that really deal with the job? And the author says, no, but it's teaching us these important lessons. We, our sin demands death, but graciously God has provided a substitute. But as the song that we sometimes sing says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience rest or wash away one stain. You'd be there going like, man, it's just not doing the job. And that's why in verses 11 to chapter 10, 18, the author says, if, that, if you've ever wondered that, like how, what is it all about? You're right. It, it teaches us two important truths, but let me tell you how Jesus' sacrifice is better. Verses 11 of chapter 9 to 10, 18 are all about one major theme, how Jesus' sacrifice is better. Now I want you to buckle up your seatbelts. There's five ways that he gives us in this passage that Jesus' sacrifice is better. 
And today, friends, the last thing I want to do is simply just give you a theological lecture. What I want to do, I mean, I love theology. I mean, I could do that. There's enough here. I could lecture you for hours. That's not what I want to do today. What I want you to do today, in light of the, just think of the blood. All that blood is necessary because of our sin. Our sin exacts death. But it can't do the job, even with a substitute. What I want to do is I give you these five things is for you to go, oh, I want you to feel the enjoy. I want you to feel the relief of how Jesus' sacrifice has done exactly what was needed for you and for me. I want all of us at the end of the sermon to go, like, just praise Jesus. Like, everything that could have been done, he's done. He's amazing. So here's the five truths. Verse 11 is the first truth. And here's how Jesus' sacrifice is better. It was made in a better location. And so remember, he's already said in the first part of chapter 9 that the sacrifice was made once a year in the Holy of Holies, which represented God's presence. But in verse 11, he says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of the creation. In other words, he says, the Holy of Holies where the priest could only go infrequently once a year only represented God's presence But Jesus has actually gone into God's presence, not once a year, but for all time, and there has presented his sacrifice before God. He is in the very presence of God. His sacrifice for you was not made in the representation of the real thing. It was made in the real place on your behalf. As Kent Hughes says, Jesus, and by the way, he didn't offer it as like the high priest was a sinner who went into the Holy of Holies. Jesus was not a sinner, And Jesus did not slip into the most holy place amidst a protective cloud of incest to breathlessly perform a ritual sprinkling and then exit quickly, fearing that he could be uh, stricken dead because of his own sin. Instead, Jesus entered into the very presence of God fearlessly because he was perfect. And having given his own precious blood once for all, he didn't just leave for his life. He actually sat down there at the right hand of the Father, never more to leave. Every other high priest had to hightail it out of the Holy of Holies. Jesus didn't have to hightail it. He sat down where he remains today, interceding for you and for me. Friends, he has made his sacrifice not in the representation of the real thing. He is sitting in the very presence of God, showing God right now his wounds and saying, I made perfect sacrifice for them. Your high priest, your representative, is in the very presence of God right now. And every time the accuser comes with one of your sins and brings them up to God, Jesus stands in his presence and says, look, I made full payment for the sins of my people, paid in full. Sacrifice has been made. Nothing more needs to be done. They stand innocent before your holiness. Second, and we know this, in verses 9 to 12, Again, you're wondering, like, really the blood of sheep? Like, how is that going to deal with our sins? In in chapter 9, verses 9 to 12, here's the second way that Jesus' sacrifice is better. It's more valuable. Take the blood of of verse 12. Uh, Well, let's just look at it. It says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. How good is that? but by means of his own blood. Friends, what is more valuable, the the blood of goats and calves or the blood of 
God the Son in human flesh. The blood of Jesus himself is infinitely more valuable. And he entered on the basis of better blood. If you're wondering, what, how can the blood of a sheep or bull or goat atone for my sin? You'd have to say it can't. But if you say, how does the blood of Jesus, who's God himself, come to save us from our sins, atone for our sin, you'd have to answer it more than does the job. It more than does the job. He entered in once and for all into the holy place and he secured our eternal redemption. What the blood of these animals could never do, what the blood of an, a heifer uh, could never do in sac- uh, sanctifying us, the blood of Jesus Christ has done perfectly. He is able, his sacrifice purifies not just our flesh, but actually our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, he offered himself as a sacrifice. No greater sacrifice could ever be made. His blood is enough to not just do the job a little bit, but fully do the job for all of us. You might come today and say, there's no way that God could forgive my sins. Friends, if you really understood what the blood of Jesus Christ could do, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no sin too great that God's that, that God is not satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done. There's no other sacrifice that could have dealt with our sins other than the blood of Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus did with one sacrifice what hundreds of thousands of other sacrifices could never do. His one sacrifice is enough to deal with all of your sins. Not only was it made in a better place in the very presence of God itself, but Jesus offered the sacrifice of his own blood for you. Verses 15 to 22 give us the third thing, the third way that Jesus' sacrifice is better. Man, I scratched my head over this one. I was like, I have no idea how to communicate this. Let's see how I do. This is the hardest to understand out of all of them. Uh, I love it, but this is kind of hard to understand. How is Jesus' sacrifice better? Third, he says, Jesus' sacrifice enacted a new covenant. What does this mean? And here's what he's saying here. In order for something to be enacted, a death has to take place. You might be saying, what? Uh, I mean, one example that we're familiar with is a last will and testament. You don't go to a lawyer and say, I'm here uh, to collect on an estate, and then present the will to the lawyer and say, by the way, my mother's still alive, but I'm here to collect on the estate. The lawyer is going to turn around and say, come back when you got a death certificate. Like, this will is not valid until a death has taken place. In verses 16 to 17, that's exactly what the author is saying. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must first be established. You need a death certificate. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so a will is completely ineffective until a death has taken place. And what he does, he takes that idea and he translates it over to covenant. And we're unfamiliar with covenant. God made a series of covenants with his people. But here's the interesting thing. He looks back to uh, Deuteronomy, or sorry, Exodus 24, where uh, Moses gave Israel the covenant. And he says, if you look at Exodus 24, when he gave the covenant, and he describes it here, sacrifices were made in order for Moses to say to the people, here's the covenant that God is enacting with us today. He took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop 
And he sprinkled, there was blood all over the place because there has to be death in order to enact a new covenant. And so the writer is basically, this is all unfamiliar to us, but he's saying, we understand the will. It's the same thing with a covenant. There needs to be a death to enact a covenant. How do we get the new covenant that God has made with us? How do we get this new covenant? And the words ring through our minds. We read them today. That Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the cup, which represents his blood, and he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's no way that a covenant could be made, a new covenant, a new agreement with God and us without blood being shed, without a life being offered. And the writer in verses uh, 15 to 22 is saying, this is what Jesus has done in enacting a new covenant. He came and he offered his life for us. When Jesus shed his blood, he enacted a new covenant. He became mediator of a new covenant. And he says here, that's what makes Jesus' sacrifice better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Because the covenant is better that began with his blood. There's a lot here in number four. Made in a better place. A better sacrifice. A better covenant that was initiated by his blood. But number four, and I love this one. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient and final. This is a little bit easier to understand here. And I want you to picture, uh, you're a Christian who believes in Jesus, but you're drifting towards Judaism. What you're drifting towards is like this parade of never-ending animals that are lined up, ready to be killed. And he comes along here and he says, you know, the, 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 the parade was never fully done because there was almost always more sin to be dealt with. In verses 26 to 28, he says, As it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Man, there's so much there. Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then he makes this point, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes a judgment. So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for them. And what he's saying here is Christ's death has dealt with your sins fully and finally. At the cross, everything that had to happen to deal with our sin problem was done. You might be wondering, what is he talking about when Christ comes again? What do you say? I don't know if any of you are ever fearful of the day when Jesus returns. You know what we hear about on that day, like all of our sins will be exposed. And do you ever worry about that day where finally like everything that you've hidden will be exposed for everybody to see? I do. But here the writer says, you don't need to worry about that day. Because when Jesus comes back the second time, it will not be to deal with the sins. He dealt with that the first time. On the second day, he will not be coming to extract another sacrifice or to offer another sacrifice, it will simply be to grant salvation because your sins were fully and finally dealt with at the first coming. We don't have to fear the second coming. The first coming dealt with our sins. The second coming will be just to grant us the rest and the salvation we've been waiting for all along. And so he says, you don't have to fear the second coming. You can look forward to it with anticipation because it will be for your benefit, for your glorification. Because everything that had to happen to deal with your sins was done the first time. Friends, look at verse 26 again, where it says, he 
has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. That term there, I love it. Jesus has put your sins away where they can't be found anymore. Your sins have been disposed of. Uh, This is going to tell you more about me than you want to know. Whenever I drive in northern Ontario, uh, I always invariably turn to Shar at some point and I say, anybody who can't hide a body in this province, sorry Nick is like, sorry, uh, you're not hearing this. I mean, any murderer that can't dispose of a dead body just isn't driving far enough on Ontario. Like, there's tons, and I don't know why it comes to my mind. I'm just thinking, like, these guys who are disposing of bodies are incompetent. Look at all this land. There's swamps and everything like that. And when I, here's where I'm going with this. God is not incompetent when it comes to putting away your sins. God has not put them in a place where they're going to be dug up and discovered He has put them where nobody will ever find them. The Old Testament sacrifices, thousands and thousands of bulls, could never do it. Jesus, just like that, did it. Your efforts could never do it. Our efforts to put away our sin only result in incompetence because they're easily discovered. But Jesus has come and put away your sins while they will never be found. You can rest relaxed. I carry so many regrets for things I've done in the past. And then I come to this passage and I I see this promise that he has put away our sin. Jesus' sacrifice for you is sufficient and final. And this is such an important point that in chapter 10, he returns to it again. In verses 11 to 14, he says, every priest stands daily at his service, never getting a day off. They're just offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Imagine these priests with carpal tunnel syndrome, like they go to the physio, like you got to quit. You know, I can't, there's more work. You got to quit. And like, it's never ending. I can't quit. There's more sins, more animals to be sacrificed. But Christ comes, it says, and offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. No more work to be done waiting until that time that his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about the priest showing up day after day. Tony Evans says that the Old Testament priests were fighting a losing battle. It doesn't matter how many animals they sacrificed, it still didn't get the job done. But Jesus did in one moment what all of them together could never do over millennia. As Tony Evans again says, the Old Testament sacrifices only had a one-year warranty, but Christ's sacrifice has an eternal warranty. His sacrifice is eternally valid, eternally guaranteed. By his one single sacrifice, he's done for all time what all the priests could not do no matter how hard they worked. He has done everything necessary to accomplish your salvation. And so you never have to worry are my sins dealt with? Yes. But what if, what if they get dug up again? No, God has put them away. They're, nobody can find them. Where he's put them, nobody can find them. Yeah, but I feel this weight of guilt. Jesus has paid for all of them. But is it enough? Yes. Jesus, one sacrifice is enough for all eternity, fully and finally. Anyone who puts their trust in Christ, all of your sins have been dealt with.
And most amazingly, in chapter 10, there's one more way that Christ, at least one more way that Christ's sacrifice was superior. Jesus' sacrifice was voluntary. Some people say, you know, how could a holy God, if God is so righteous, how could he punish Jesus for uh, my sins? That's not very just of God the Father to put my sins on Jesus. And some people have even struggled and said horrible things about that whole thing that Jesus bore our sins, that the Father punished Jesus for our sins. Well, here's the thing that they're missing. The Father did not do anything to Jesus, but the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit colluded together. And this passage says it was not the Father placing our sins upon an unwilling Jesus. It was Jesus saying, I'll go. It was Jesus saying in his love for us, I will offer my life as a sacrifice for them. You know, in all the history of sacrifices, there was not one bull or goat that volunteered. Jesus volunteered. Jesus was not an unwilling victim. Jesus willingly took our place. And here, the author quotes Psalm 40, and, I, and um, he applies it to Jesus in verses 5 to 7. And he basically says, uh, here's what Jesus did. Jesus, I think this is a great Christmas passage. Verse 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me and the scroll of the book. At Christmas time, Jesus essentially said, I like to think of these as almost Jesus' final words before taking on human flesh and being born. Behold, I'm I'm come to do your will, O God. I came to die. I will willingly offer my life as a sacrifice for their sins. In verse 9, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. The whole reason Jesus came was to offer his life for us. He willingly, consciously, and intentionally gave his body for his people. A lamb does not wake up one morning and say, I would like to give my life for sinners today. But Christ, unlike a lamb, didn't die because he was forced into it. He went forward willingly. This is the picture of love. How much did God love you? So much that the son said, I will go. He was not just given for you. He gave himself for you. The whole problem with the sacrificial system is that it was distant and external. It was easy for it just to become a matter of performing the rites. But Jesus did not just perform a rite. He offered himself out of love for you. And it was deeply personal. I kind of bristle at some of the songs that said, you know, he thought of me above all. I don't know that he thought of me above all, but I know that he thought of you. I know that if Jesus offered his life, it wasn't some impersonal thing. You were on his mind. As he gave his life, he gave it for you. He gave it out of love for you. And the author gets to the end of this and he says, I've just given you a tour of the Old Testament sacrificial system and I just want you to know Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. And here's what he wants to say. If, if you're ever wondering if Jesus' sacrifice, if you ever wonder if your sins were serious, yes, your sins demand death. Have you ever wondered if Jesus, if God will allow a substitute? Yes. The sacrificial system taught us for have you ever wondered, though, is that sacrifice enough? The writer looks at Jesus and says, 
Yes, it is enough. Jesus' sacrifice deals decisively with the enormous offense of your sins. And so today, my friends, at the heart of the Jewish and Christian faith is something very disturbing that points to the reality of our sin. Our sin demands death. There's no part of the biblical faith, I would argue, that's more ugly and jarring than the killing of animals to take care of our sin. Or might I even add, the killing of God himself to deal with our sin. It's ugly, it's jarring, it points to the ugliness of sin. But scripture teaches us that our sin is so unbelievably ugly that it took the most vicious kind of death for us to see it. Friends, take just one look at one of your sins. Think of the cost of just one single sin. That single sin alone is enough to warrant your death. Now think of all of your sins committed over your whole lifetime. Think of the worst things you've done. Think of them at their ugliest and and worst. How could God forgive all of those? And the writer to the Hebrews comes back and says, there's only one way. Through the sacrifice of his son, who gave his life in our place and dealt fully and finally with all of those and put them all away. There's no greater sacrifice and there's no greater savior. Father, thank you for this amazing news. It humbles us because we see the ugliness of our sins. And Lord, we feel it. We know that our sins are ugly. We feel the weight. We feel the shame. We look at the blood of of goats and bulls and we realize they would never do the job. We see the ugliness of our sin. We see that it demands death, but they could never do the job. But Lord, we just take one look at Jesus and hear his words, it is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. His sacrifice was enough to deal with our sins for all of eternity. And so Lord, I pray if there's any one here today who's put their faith in you but still feels the weight of sins that have been covered by the cross. Lord, I pray that right now they would look to Jesus, that they would be able to say to the accuser who wants to drag them back into condemnation, my sins have been paid for in full. Father, would you keep our eyes on Jesus as he's at your right hand? Would you keep our eyes on him so that we would know that our sins have been fully forgiven and put away through him? But Lord, I want to pray if there's anybody here who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I sense somebody came in today and as they came in, they weren't really sure that they wanted to be here. And the reason why is because they dragged in with them a weight of sins and they didn't want to come and hear a message that was going to make them feel guiltier. Father, they, were, they came in today knowing the weight of sin. But it might be that there's somebody here today and they can leave their sins at the foot of the cross where they will be fully and finally dealt with for eternity. And so Lord, if there, I just pray right now, would there be two or three or five people who come to the foot of the cross and look to Jesus and put their hope in him that he would deal decisively with their sins at this very moment for eternity. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the perfect sacrifice offered for our sins. We worship him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you, Daryl, for bringing the word to us. We'll take a moment now to do a quick Q&R. If you need a reminder for where to go to post your questions, the link is up there on the screen. So, Daryl, first question for you. Um, Verse 26 says that Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Um, Does that include the Jews who would have been under the Old Covenant? And can you explain how his sacrifice is effective for them? If so... Yeah, verse 15 actually uh, is such a key verse. How were Old Testament believers saved? Through the blood of Jesus. And verse 15 points that out. It says uh, that since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So I think it points us to the first covenant believers were saved by faith, just as we are, in the finished work of Christ. Uh, they didn't know it, but Christ, off- when he offered his life for them, It covered the sins that they'd committed under the first covenant as well. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Another question. If if we will be without sin once we get into heaven, then why does Jesus still retain his human body for the rest of eternity, since there's no more need for propitiation of sin, and hence his priestly role? It is an amazing thing to think that in the presence of God himself as a human being right now, God in flesh, God, the the God-man, And for some reason, God has so chosen to identify with us, not just temporarily, but for eternity, that he's just taken on, like, he's become one of us for eternity. So there's something in God's plan where I I think Jesus chose to identify fully with us, not just for a time to save for our sins, but for eternity. So uh, I think it was just evidence of God's grace and willingness to um, associate with us. Mm, Yeah, praise God for that. Um, So it can be easy to... Uh, think and see how Jesus has forgiven us of sins maybe that we didn't do intentionally. But how about the sins that we have committed intentionally? Does God still forgive us of those? Yeah, you know, it mentions uh, unintentional sins here in verse uh, 9, verse 7. But the sacrifice of Christ is also, aren't you glad? Because how many sins have I committed? I've committed both, but the number of intentional sins I've committed is great. And Jesus' sacrifice covers those as well. Praise Mm. God. Yeah, praise God for that as well. Um, are, do you think that there's different tiers of sin in which are not forgiven by Jesus' sacrifice, such as like the um, Catholic doctrines of venial sin or, or mortal sin? So, two-part answer, yes, there are different uh, levels of seriousness of sin. Uh, some sins are worse than others. You know, to tell a, a white lie is very different from committing murder. Uh, one has, is greater, and yet Christ died for all of them. There's no sin that, the only sin that he, he says will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is uh, so fully rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and drawing you to Christ. You will not be forgiven if you reject Jesus, and yet every other sin can be forgiven mm. by simple trust in Jesus. Mm. Yeah. How would you respond to someone who says that Jesus' sacrifice is quote-unquote cosmic abuse? I would point to the willing, uh, Steve Chalk said that, I referred to that a little bit, mm. and I think the answer to that would just be it's not, because Jesus went willingly, so uh, we, I've noticed this, there's so many stories, whenever we read them, of somebody who gives their life heroically to save another person, mm. we don't call that abuse, we call that heroism, and it's the same with Jesus, if, if, if Jesus didn't do it willingly, you could make a case that it was uh, abusive, and so, but he went willingly for us, mm. so... I think it's just a gross misrepresentation. It's actually, I think, one of the ugliest ways to look at the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, I just, 
I'm appalled that anybody would think that because he went willingly for us. Yeah. How can we, both as new believers and maybe those who have been believers for a while, guard against the thoughts that uh, we've kind of run out of our neediness for Jesus' sacrifice for us? Oh, I've never gotten there. (laughs) Um, Man, I think, uh, I don't know, the ugliness of my sin just is so real. So I think like just ask God to give you a keen awareness of your own sin. I I feel like we fall into two ditches, right? One is where are too convicted for our sin, or not too convicted, but we feel the condemnation of the accuser. The one is when we no longer realize our need of a savior. Both are horrible. So ask God to give you like, man, my sin is serious. I'm still a sinner. I still need God's grace, but my sins are covered through Christ. Mm. So somehow ending up in the middle is the work of the spirit Mm. in our lives. Yeah, very good. And maybe a a final question here. Uh, You said in your sermon that sacrifices were made daily uh, back under the the old covenant times. Uh, Were they not made on the Sabbath as well? Yeah, as I was saying that, uh, I think probably that I'd I'd have to double check. I don't think they were made on the Sabbath. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Would there have been any reason for that or... It, yeah, I, I, so don't quote me on that. That's a good question. I'll need to get back. But I think on the Sabbath, it would have been a good day for, uh, I don't know, everyone to take the, the rest that God had given them. But that's a good question. I've never actually thought about that before. As I was preaching, I thought of that. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, thank you, Daryl. I'll take a moment to pray for us now. God, we thank you that in your son, we have a true and better sacrifice, one that is full and fully sufficient for every sin we have committed, are committing, and will ever commit. God, I pray that you'd help this truth to dwell in us richly. Help us to remind each other of it every day so that we might not be hardened by sin. Lord, we thank you for this. Please guard our hearts against thinking that we don't need you, Father, because we do. We so desperately do. So in your son's name we pray. Amen.